I have this big pile of things around me because here was my plan for today. Let's see if it happens. What doesn't happen today will finish next week. I, I really made a plan when I came back to try to begin at the beginning. And so we had one week on the birth and the beginning of the Buddha and one week on uh, and all the stories that went with that. And the next week on uh, the Buddha's enlightenment and uh, his own experience of uh, feeling the temptations of uh, uh, Mara, who's the personification of all of the distractions in life that keep us from being in touch with our own compassionate good heart. And then last week, uh, the third week, we had uh, the Four Noble Truths, his uh, sermon on setting in motion the turning of the wheel that he gave to five monks outside of, uh, uh, in the Deer Park, outside of Benares, which were a summation of what he understood in his enlightenment experience. And last week, we went back and did the fourth of those Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, uh, again in more detail. And we did it together with um, the path of the cultivation of the paramitas, the ten qualities of the good heart. So there are really two different ways in Buddhism for saying this is the way that you cultivate um, a heart that stays awake so that it does not get caught in the suffering of uh, tanha, of insatiable desire, so that it is free. The third noble truth is that we could be free. Peace is possible in this life. And here's the training program for doing it. Those eight steps of wise understanding and aspiration and wise speech, action, uh, livelihood, wise effort, wise uh, mindfulness, wise concentration. And here's this other program, not to say one is better than the other, but there are two beautiful programs to look at right next to each other. They're just two different expressions of the same thing. Uh, the Eightfold Path, we turned out, or at least it seems clear to me, are all permutations of each other. And those ten qualities of the heart, uh, um, generosity, renunciation, morality, wisdom, patience, energy, uh, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity, are the ten particular qualities of the heart that the Buddha was said to have developed over eons of lifetimes, uh, many of them lifetimes as an um, as a as an animal, as an owl who was very wise, or a parrot who was very compassionate. And I had in mind for today. I have in mind for today to talk about another list. Uh, to talk about the list of what we normally call the five hindrances, five culaces, five different ways in which the mind becomes stormed up when it is challenged. They're classically thought of as habitual ways that uh, um, lust and aversion and uh, torpor and restlessness and doubt. And uh, classically, when we teach about them, we teach about them as um, particular kinds of energetic experiences in the mind that... um, present themselves with certain kind that manifest with certain kind of thoughts and sometimes with certain kinds of behavior. So we talk about lust and lust being a, an acquisitive energy. I need this. And aversion 
being a pushing away energy. I have to get rid of this. I don't like it. And torpor being um, a sleepy energy. You know, I just can't even make out what's going on. It's a I can't even deal with it. I'm not even here to deal with it. And restlessness being a um, um, uh, an, uh, an energetic uh, inability to really focus, kind of an energetic nervousness that manifests itself in either a body restlessness or a mind restlessness, often manifests in worry. Uh, for years I thought... Uh, since I put myself in the category now of a uh, recovering fretter, uh, I would have said for years that my principal hindrance was worrying about everything. You know, the, all the jokes about when in doubt, worry, uh, seemed like they were written about me, or the jokes about uh, uh, news at eleven, start worrying now, or you know, some of the. Uh, film at 11, start worrying now, uh, that there's a kind of a habitual worrier of people given to anxiety, which for what reasons, genetic or karmic or who knows why I seem to be, but uh, but recovering from, as I see it, to be a mind state and uh, uh, to be a habitual mind state, but not who I am and one that I really can negotiate my way around better. And doubt being actually classically described in the text as a wobbly energy, not a steady energy. Like, maybe I should and maybe I shouldn't. And uh, sometimes people think about uh, people who obsess back and forth over something. Maybe I should, maybe I should, maybe I should. Some people, I used to think that about my father, that he had an incredible ability to to, uh, go back and forth about something. He'd say... uh, I think I'm going to do it this way, sell it, because this and this and this and this and this and this. That seems like a good thing, so I'm going to do it that way. What do you think? I'd say, I think that sounds good, Dad. Fine. He said, on the other hand. And then he'd do a whole other thing about the other side. And you get all finished. I said, well, that sounds right, Dad. You could, you know, you could do it that way. It's a but. And then go back to the first one. And uh, to an incredible ability, carry this on incredibly long, my father was a very good friend of mine, you know, bright and companionable, but he got lost in those kind of loops of back and forth and back and forth that I've sometimes found personally tedious in our relationship until I decided his birthday is October 11th. He is in the middle of Libra. You know, that back and forth, back and forth. When I thought to, when I thought to myself, can't believe how obsessive he is, it was burdensome to me. When I thought, that's remarkable what a Libra he is, it was less burdensome to me. You know, this guy put a different context around it. I think actually it has to do not, who knows, maybe it has to do with Libra. And maybe Libra dictates the, the fact that his mind loop goes back and forth in that certain way when Gay went back and forth in that certain way. But, but those are classically those five hindrances. I wanted to see if I could talk about them in the way that I just did and then elaborate them, not only in the words of the Buddha, uh, but also to make it clear that these are contemporarily, contemporary reasonable categories to think about by also looking at this morning's newspaper. I didn't know what was going to be in this morning's newspaper. I was counting on this morning's newspaper to actually come through, which it did. Um, and uh, 
and on the magazines that came in the mail yesterday. So, uh, how should we start? Since I read the magazines yesterday before this morning, I want to start with putting it again in a context that goes back to where are we going. This is uh, this month's Smithsonian magazine that just came. And uh, there's a uh, uh, biologist, a neurobiologist, here she is, who's in, uh, at Stanford, actually, or at uh, UC, San Fr- oh, UC San Francisco, Cynthia Kenyon, UC San Francisco. She uh, has been working for uh, more than 20 years, quarter of a century, on, along with many other scientists, which, because that's what this whole article is about, on locating the gene that extends life and how to make people live longer. She did her graduate work in um, working with tiny worms and somehow biologically, genetically engineering those worms so that they continue to come out the same worms, but they live five times as long. So uh, people are really interested in that. They go back into the history of of trying to um, conquer death by pushing it off and all the fountain of youth and Ponce de Leon and his discovery of Florida, which was really prompted by looking for some mythical fountain of youth in Bimini, which he didn't find and actually found Florida instead. But <laughs> that... But the 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 quest for um, and the the somewhat bizarre, more recent things that um, the search for youthful immortality took a new, notably pseudoscientific turn in eighteen eighty nine, when the respected French scientist Charles Edouard Brown Sequard claimed he could rejuvenate old men with an injection containing crushed dog testicles. Though the claim was mistaken, it, it <laughs> incited scientific races in the early 20th century to isolate the male hormone testosterone and the female hormone estrogen, which have long been prompted by physicians and charlatans alike as anti-aging tonics. Okay. Uh, actually, interesting. I, I, I read this article yesterday and was particularly interested in the end of it where... Uh, certain researchers are raising certain ethical, kind of moral considerations, like um, if you could fix it up so that the body lived longer, uh, there's always a possibility that you outlive your brain. And uh, uh, so the, the question of manipulating around particular parts of, of the body, or uh, one of the chief researchers who's a person... Here he is, who uh, for 20 years uh, has lived on a very low-calorie diet because it's quite clear that skinny animals live longer than non-skinny animals, given all other things being equal. So that on the things in favor of longevity, skinniness is one of them. So he made himself very skinny. So now he's in his late 70s, but now he has ALS. Uh, which he lived long enough to have. So you start to wonder about if if the whole of the genetic code is so confused, so complicated. The point that the, I learned from the article is that 
what people understand is that we have genes that regulate everything. And genes that regulate when particular organs shouldn't work anymore. So that if you have early onset of um, diabetes, for instance, many, many adults late who become old or elderly develop some mild form of diabetes. The pancreas gives out before they do. For people who develop uh, early onset in the 40s, say, of diabetes, there's a gene in there usually that says, okay, the pancreas is finished now and the, and the pancreas doesn't work anymore after that time. Since engineering one gene without engineering all of them is a problematic kind of a thing, you wonder about it. So I read this whole article with a lot of wonderment and a lot of appreciation and not a conclusion about what should we do. But then I thought, uh, I thought of the line from Mary Oliver, what, uh, what should we do with this one wild and precious life? And I thought that the, story, the question I wanted to put around this whole question about should we engineer, should we not engineer, I really hope that they do this Uh, experiments. I hope that they do all of the gene experiments. I have a friend who's about to have the newest gene treatment for breast cancer because she already has metastatic breast cancer. And if it could save her, that would be a great thing. She's a vital woman with a lot to contribute. So it's not that I don't like this research. I just want to keep around it the thought, not how long can we make the life, but as long as we got it, what are we going to do with it? That, and then in it we can do anything we can do gene research okay that was the first piece of news did the say something about longevity about it was something like better a day spent sitting in meditation than a hundred years in our usual swirl did you remember that quote? I don't know where he said that Rosa did you hear that but the, Rosa saying that the Buddha said better a day spent in um Serene meditation than a hundred years in our usual swirl. I don't know where the Buddha said that, but he could have said it. Yeah, he could have said that. Um, <laughs> no, you couldn't have made it up. Uh, so this is a this is the February issue of uh, Spirituality and Health magazine. And this is an article uh, called um, This is Your Brain. This is Your Brain Praying. Uh, this is the man who took the pictures. What does he believe? Anyway, the man who took the pictures is a man named uh, Andrew Newberg. And he wrote a book called Why God Won't Go Away. Um, and the, the this is a fascinating article about the taking scans of the brain, what kinds of you can't see them but you can see that that's what's in the article, scans of the brain and blood supply in the brain when people are sitting it just in an ordinary way or when meditators are meditating and so they had uh, they had meditators they had Buddhist monks and they had um, Catholic nuns, part of their survey Groups of them come in to be as part of the research and they would uh, take a scan of their brains and uh, 
or they would have them, yeah, they'd take a scan of the brain and then have them meditate and then take another scan. And what's clear is that certain parts of the brain light up when they're activated and other, so you can tell which parts of the brain are firing at this point and which parts have gotten quiet before and after the meditation. In essence, what they discovered is that people who are skilled meditators or prayers, people who can bring all their attention into this moment focused, tend to have reliably across the board, whatever their religious tradition is, feelings of well-being, feelings of safety, feelings of comfort, feelings of connectedness to uh, the all that surrounds them, a disappearance of their own awareness of their own body. So not so different from what happens to people with um, a contemplative practice that they have some familiarity with. I mean, not to do a show of hands, but I will say that for many of you who have done some amount of contemplative practice, you have those experiences where you're sitting and all of a sudden you realize the mind is relaxed. You're okay. Sometimes people will say, you know, I got frightened because I realized I couldn't feel my whole body. My body disappeared. And then it happened to you sometime. My body disappeared. Body didn't disappear. What happened is that all the attention moves to a different part of the brain functioning, actually. And the part that connects to the body, its pains and its aches and its hunger, just is out, out, um, outshined in the brain. There's just all the emphasis is on something else. And so all of a sudden, the body disappears from consciousness. It's still there. And in those states not identified with this body, the identification then becomes with the state itself, which is the state of well-being or of compassion or ease or safety or graciousness. And then the sense that, uh, that it's, it's bigger than this particular being, this consciousness left. And on um, a consciousness that remembers its personal identification, so we begin to say, "I felt connected to the all. I felt connected to God. That uh, the 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 uh, consciousness that's part of this was at that point a unity consciousness. It wasn't anything separate from me and 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 everything." Um, and people varyingly will call that the, the state of the unborn, the state of the deathless, the state of the non-dual, the state of the sublime, uh, unity consciousness, uh, being filled with the awareness of God, not separate from God. God being the word that for many people means that experience of such sublime contentment in which there's no fear, <coughs> Susan. Um, I don't know whether to take the time to say this, but at the University Art Museum in Berkeley, they have an exhibit that's called Awake, and it's contemporary looking at meditation and, uh, and Buddhism. And last Sunday there was a lecture by a scientist who is studying meditation and is showing how by doing it that the, the circuits change. I mean, that he's, you know, he had all the scientific stuff, but that that practice makes perfect. Or that, I mean, yeah, yeah. That the changes that take place over continually practicing. So this is Berkeley Art Museum? Yeah, the Berkeley, I mean, he just lectured last Sunday, but there is a continuing exhibit that's called Awake, 
And um, like next, on the 12th, they're going to have poets reading of, of Buddhism. And they have a whole, and I mean, I just think it's really interesting. If anybody is there, mm -hmm. Thursday mornings, you can go free until noon. <laughs> but uh, That's anyway. great to know. Yeah. And I also like the idea. Thank you very much. That no, was perfect. Because I'm also happy to know that the name of that exhibit is Awake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. gives me the chance to say for anybody who might not have heard the story before, that when people asked the Buddha, are you a god? He said, no. And they said, are you a normal person then? Regular human being then? And he said, no. And they said, what are you then? He said, I'm awake. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that's really the, uh, a, a, a centrally important teaching for me. I think for all of us, first of all, that I'm not a regular human being, but a human being, but awake. So that means... It's a potential for us. Also, he didn't say I'm a Buddhist. Just said I'm awake. <laughs> so a lot of times when people come here, they wonder about, you know, is this, um, have I signed up for something? And do I have to become a Buddhist? Do I have to believe the whole cosmology of Buddhism? What if I actually have another religious tradition that lives in my heart? Everybody could be awake. It's a human possibility. The awake village. The awakened. <laughs> the awake village. There you go. The world. The Awakening Village. The Awakening Village is not bad. That's very nice. Who said that? Uh, <laughs> um, with information flowing into the brain, um, with no information, oh, it, that that when this when the attention is brought to another area of the brain, which is what meditation does and away from the area that uh, uh, recognizes physical stimuli, this effectively blocks the sensory input that usually streams into us, into the brain. With no informa information flowing into that area, the brain cannot create a boundary between self and outside world or locate itself in physical reality. As a result, it has no choice but that to perceive that self as endless, interwoven with everyone and everything. Uh, is this what the Buddha called jhanas? Actually, uh, Rose is asking, is this what the Buddha called jhana states? Jhana states, J-H-A-N-A, are states of uh, very high, particularly high concentration in which particular forms of... Um, um, okay, take it back. In which particular uh, characteristics are prominent? A state of jhana has five characteristics. This is important because it has to do with the five uh, hindrances, five kilesias. The mind is concentrated. It has five qualities in it that it doesn't have when it's not concentrated. It has the capacity to really recognize what's happening. Mind is concentrated. It recognizes this is happening. That's what's happening. Now that's happening. This is also happening. This is happening. Um, over a wide range, you know, the, the odd metaphor, the, or the odd association that I just had for that? I just had to have my annual eye exam, uh, which included um, a uh, a, a field recognition scan. Do you ever do one of these things? Mm -hmm. It's the oddest thing. You sit in front of a machine 
and uh, they move it up quite close to your eye, and a light blinks here, and then there, and then there, and then there. It makes you a little nervous, doesn't it? And you get a little clicker, so that every time they, and they give you the instruction, every time a light blinks, uh, flashes, you click. So they want to test the visual field to see if you're losing any acuity. So I'm happy to tell you I'm not. But during doing it, you get really tense, and you really concentrate. You're really looking, dang, 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 dang. So now that I'm telling you that, and I'm telling you about the capacity to aim the attention, the mind that's concentrated can see this and this and this and this and this. It's not, it's not small-minded, it's big-minded. The mind that can concentrate can also sustain its attention over a long period of time, just really keep on. I thought that, by the way, that eye test would never end. You know, it goes on and on and on and on. But but the concentration stays up for it because you don't want to fail that test and set off alarm buttons in your doctor's mind. Uh, the mind that's concentrated has a certain amount of pleasurable feeling in it. It has rapture in it. it has the capacity to aim, the capacity to sustain. It has a certain amount of rapture in it. The mind that's concentrated has a certain amount of calm in it. Just, it does. That's one of the characteristics. When you feel particularly concentrated sometimes, you can give yourself a test. You can say, is the factor of aiming present in me? Am I really awake or am I just kind of sitting here? There's a way of sitting quite tranquilly in what feels like a concentrated mind state that's actually um, a sort of semi-sleep. It's not bad. It's like a rest. It's the mind with, with its motor running quietly, not doing anything very much, but not very bright. So, you know, is my mind, is the capacity for me to, is my ability to see things clearly operating now? The second part of that uh, is my ability to keep paying attention moment to moment up. Can I sustain my attention? Am I sustaining or am I drifting off and coming back, drifting off and coming back? Is there rapture in this moment? Am I delighted? You know, is my body at ease or pleased? Or, you know, sometimes you think about rapture, you think about huge rapture, falling off the chair with rapture. It's not that kind of rapture. It's some amount of pleasant feeling in the body. Is my uh, ability to... Uh, so there's a, there has a certain quality of calm in it, and it has also the, the capacity to uh, keep itself one-pointed if you needed to. You can just really put it on something and pay attention to it, and it will stay there. So if you were sitting, for instance, you could say, okay, I'm just going to be with my breath. Or if you were doing some task, you say, okay, I'm just going to do this now. So it has those five qualities. Those five qualities or capacities turn out to be natural antidotes to the five hindrances of mind of lust, aversion, torpor, restlessness, and doubt. So sometimes when people teach about those five particular mind disturbances, there are particular practices that you can do for each of them. And say, okay, if I feel this lust, well, I could remind myself about the pleasure of renunciation. Or if I feel this anger, I could practice a little loving kindness for myself at least, a little compassion for myself. Or you could just concentrate that one of the really tremendously uh, inspiring things to me about recognizing difficult mind states 
is that there are antidotes to the difficult mind states. But the one antidote that's the overarching antidote to the difficult mind states is you could really concentrate. You could just sit down, stop, and concentrate a little bit. And then all of these five particular uh, capacities uh, arise naturally as part of concentration and are the antidotes. Rose's question that started off this the whole discussion about what are the jhanas, jhanic states are states of concentration in which one or the other of those capacities is so full-blown that it fills up the whole mind and body. Rapture is so enormous that the mind just cannot move. It's so filled with rapture. The body is so filled with rapture. body is filled with a calm that um, is amazing, just so complete tranquility. Um, the body is so uh, sharp, or the mind is so sharp, that it sees every single thing, connects with every single thing, and knows that it is sustaining its attention. It's hard to know what, what the borderline, but people will sometimes talk about, I did jhana practice, I was in the second jhana, I was in the third jhana. It's hard to know when uh, a state of comfortable concentration becomes a state of jhana. You know that uh, I, you know, I, I know how I feel myself, but I don't know how other people feel. I don't think it's so important to be able to have a report card. I achieved this or the other or the other or the other. Any amount of composure or concentration that um, tends in the way of clear thinking by uh, erasing those hindrances is good. doesn't need to be profound or filled out. So I want to do this morning's newspaper because what I hope really to... I wanted so much to be able to read, as I told you, from the Buddha and from this morning's newspaper in the same breath. Um, So I'm going to do the Buddha first. You remember, I, this, I read this, this poem to you a couple of weeks ago from the Sutta Nipata uh, of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment where Mara, the evil forces of all of the temptations of lust and, uh, lust and aversion and torpor, restlessness, doubt, are all assailing him. And um, he says, uh, uh, you won't get me, Mara, because I have... Uh, says, never mind, Mara, oh evil one, you've come here for your own ends. Um, Not going to get me, in essence, he says, because I have faith and energy and I have wisdom too. I have mindfulness and understanding. I shall have greater concentration. So he, in essence, has said, I have faith, wisdom, energy, mindfulness, and concentration, which are the five spiritual faculties. So now we have three lists of five today. The five kilashas of lust, aversion, uh, torpor, restlessness, and doubt. The five states of a concentrated mind, which are aiming, sustaining, rapture, calm, and uh, one-pointedness. And uh, the five spiritual faculties, which are faith, energy, wisdom, mindfulness, and concentration. I actually think, and this is the point that I wanted to get to, Earlier on, remember David said, I, had, I have four or five things, he said, that are ways that I can concentrate. I think fundamentally concentration is the bottom or the top or the, the container out of which all of those others come. 
that concentration needs to be present for mindfulness to be present, that out of concentration comes wisdom, that uh, the first line actually of, uh, this is actually out of the tradition, but the first line of the Yoga Sutta, it's a earlier than the Buddha, uh, but would have been part of the Buddha's heritage, is, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, when the mind is still, wisdom is self-revealing. That really wisdom requires a quiet mind and then it arises by itself. Out of uh, a concentrated mind that does not squander its energy comes the uh, uh, enough energy to act on what we see needs to be done so that the energy of the mind is not spent in uh, circles of confusion or... Uh, the energy of the mind is available. I think that's a better way to say it. And in the end, it will, the fifth of the spiritual faculties, faith, I think uh, answers Alan's question, the first question of this morning, that my own faith is restored when uh, I'm able to settle my mind down, or my mind is able to settle down. There isn't an I who does it, right? That the mind is able to settle itself down, and I find that what's most clear to me is that... Uh, uh, the heart of its own good nature chooses wisely. That really restores my faith that actually for those of us who are reasonably... I think for human beings, our heritage is a good heart. I think sometimes it, 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 it's true that people for reasons of unfortunate neurological unusualnesses in them, which really are... Um, I think that human beings have that capacity for a compassionate heart. Don't think it's a, a sweet story that we tell ourselves in order to keep our spirits up. I think the the, the possibility of human beings uh, that makes them different from other animal beings is that um, we can have our whole instinct system and our whole lust system and we can make decisions to behave other than by the promptings of that. Actually, I could read you this lovely piece of Rumi, but I do want to tell you what's in this morning's paper. Senses and thoughts are like weeds on the clear water's surface. The hands of the heart sweep the weeds aside and the water is revealed. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. I love that line. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. I think the word piety has come into bad use recently. Piety sounds like, I think piety is great. I think it means thoughtful carefulness. Um, so, this morning's newspaper. When piety has chained the hands of desire, the hands of the heart are free to move. That's roomy, actually. So I looked on the front page of the newspaper. Um, at least 143 people died yesterday in attacks at two sacred sites in Iraq. Certainly this is somebody's aversion reaching some really terrible place. Senate leaders scuttle gun bill over changes. This was a bill to extend the ban on semi-automatic rifles. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. 
And the reason that uh, even the president actually was in favor of extending the ban, which runs out in September, the reason why it uh, didn't pass is um, there were some amendments in it that uh, made it not po- that did not grant immunity that did not grant immunity to gun manufacturers from uh, lawsuits that might be made against them for terrible things that happen from the use of guns and the gun lobby so controls so much of the Senate that. It got voted down. Ex-Worldcom chief is indicted by U.S. in securities fraud. Federal prosecutors yesterday charged Bernard J. Ebers, the former chief of the telecommunications giant Worldcom, with helping to plan and execute the biggest accounting fraud in the history of American business. And it goes on to tell about what he did and the, the whole article in the middle of the paper on uh, the numbers of people who were complicit from the beginning in this plan to do this huge accounting fraud. Um, certainly it's a story about lust. And it's a story about confusion, I think. Uh, certainly a lack of wisdom. And I read the paper and, you know... I tried to think about those are the same kinds of lusts. You know, it's a lust. It's a bigger lust, maybe, than other people have. But I think about the possibility of having people of, of sound mind make decisions to do a thing like that purposely. I think, what could be the mind state? What would have to happen? Um, what would, what would people have to see? Then I think to myself, if I'm, if I'm really in a good shape, because I don't always think to myself, sometimes I feel a, a certain amount of... Anyway, when I'm in a good shape, let's not even say. <laughs> I don't even know what the right word is. Uh, maybe the, what, what I'm thinking about is, and because this would be a mistake, that's why I stopped. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cop to a certain feeling of moral superiority because it's not it's incorrect it's a bigger scam than maybe things I might do but I think the appropriate thing for me to do if I'm going to read the paper seriously and not just get irritated at it is to think to myself how do I plan what are the little larcenies that I'm doing are there little larcenies that I'm doing if I am planning when I meet so and so I'll say this, and then they'll feel that, uh, which doesn't have their complete well-being at, at heart, you know, which really is addressing a grievance of mine or a lust of mine. I'm best served, actually, if I look at this and I think, look what could happen if you are blind to lust or desire or aversion. Look what you could do. You could go kill people. And you could exploit them so I have to think of myself how am I exploiting or abusing and how can I change the world so that I won't um, exploit or abuse and how can I not lose faith in human beings so maybe the last thing I want to tell you is uh, uh, last night after dinner we went over to the uh, Kucinich headquarters in uh, 
Corte Madera, uh, because they'll soon close now. Uh, but uh, it was wonderful to be there with a bunch of people who were uh, valiant and, to the end, supporters of uh, Dennis Kucinich staying in the race, clearly not going to be the president or run for president, uh, because they had a lot of faith in the value of the message of um, fair government staying out. And, uh, you know, people here will have different political opinions and uh, I'm always a little bit thoughtful about whether or not I should be saying mine, but um, the, my, the, the biggest opinion I have is that uh, um, my own spiritual practice is very much linked to my conviction that I have to read the paper and I have to think, and I have to think about my own participation in the political process, I have to think about how not to get angry at this so I can stay active about it. Uh, I, uh, I know that I've told you a lot of times that, uh, about uh, checking out moveon.org. Did you get their email yesterday? I almost sent it to Shelley and said, put it on the Yahoo page. But I decided I can't do that because uh, it's, not, it's not correct. It's a political point of view. And, that's a Yahoo page, and this is a church, and you're not supposed to have a political opinion. And so if I have a political opinion, it's mine, not those places. But my biggest opinion is that everybody has to vote. And that, um, that, that's my opinion. I think if the whole country voted, whatever they vote for, okay. Um, Less than 40. That's so painful to me. But that's of registered voters. I mean, that is it's not even one percent of registered voters. So all the people are not registered. So look at the. So you know, not, I, I was just about to say, let's not end on a demoralizing note. And I was about to tell you that I heard from my granddaughter that more people voted for the last American Idol finalist than voted in the presidential election last time. And uh, it's extremely hard not to become demoralized about that. So I think that we should end with one moment of, uh, you know what I did? I, 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 I didn't send move on to my entire list in my computer because I don't like to send it to every single person in my, in my address book. And I didn't send it, uh, I didn't send it to Sherry until I put it on the webpage, but I am telling you now, check it out. Uh, and, but I did send it to 10 people. And I said, send this to 10 people. And tell them to send it to 10 people. So I think just a few people at a time. Most people, this is my conviction, bottom line, this is my religious sentiment. I believe that the Buddha was right about the nature of human hearts being essentially uh, tending towards the good and the benevolent and not behaving out of that place when the confusion or uh, some other... Uh, baffling mind state has taken over. So I think really that the mandate for me is always to keep my mind clear. The fifth of those precepts, I undertake the precept to abstain from anything that confuses my mind and leads to heedlessness. What would have happened if any of these folks here would have taken that precept? Um, They wouldn't have thrown the bombs in the mosques yesterday and they wouldn't have um, 
done that Worldcom, and they would have voted for gun control, and and it's just regular rules. So, how about we make a dedication of merit that the merit of our being together and studying together be dedicated, as always, but with full, full heart to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy. Stop causing their own suffering and the suffering of others so that the whole world comes, in fact, to the end of suffering. Imagine what that would be like. Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 3, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.